0: Sing this song for the healing of the world. Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helps Meet and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. You might believe that it takes a rocket scientist to figure out your sustainable energy options, but maybe an aerospace engineer is sufficient, and that's who we have here today for Spirit in Action. Bob Bruninga is near the end of his work at the U.S. Naval Academy and is passionate about electric cars and solar energy. He built his first electric car way back in 1970, led his neighborhood's implementation of alternative energy, and helped Annapolis Friends Meeting in their installation of net zero energy solar panels. He's the lead author of a new book, energy choices, opportunities to make wise decisions for a sustainable future, and he knows whereof he writes. I learned a lot from the book, even though I considered myself reasonably well-informed beforehand, so look forward to being better equipped to make great decisions. Bob Bruniga joins me before a live audience at the annual Friends General Conference gathering held this year in Toledo, Ohio. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I always look forward to this topic.
0: Is it the thing that you mainly discuss with people would if you quit your work, would you be doing this 40 hours a week just spreading the knowledge about alternative energy? Is that the way to call it? That's a good thing.
1: Yes, because it's been my lifelong interest although that was interrupted for 50 years by other things, but now that I'm retirement is coming soon, I'm dedicating the rest of my life to this calling, which is sharing what I've learned about alternative energy and our future of energy, because all the answers are here now.
0: Let's go way back to the beginning, and it's something that you spell out in the book. In 1970, I think it was, you actually took a car, converted it to make it electric car. What led you to do that? How old were you at the time?
1: That was my senior project at Georgia Tech. And, you know, every engineer has to do a project. And so I always wanted to build an electric car because as a young kid in middle school and high school and whenever, I was building go-karts to drive around the yard because my dad wouldn't let me drive it on the street. So I've spent my whole life trying to make gas engines run like lawnmowers and things. And just, uh, I can always get it to run, but it's just the time, energy, sink of messing around with oil and gas, just. I'm done with it. So electric was the future, we thought, back in 1970. So that was my my project. We entered the clean air car race. It was the first challenge between MIT and Caltech to drive alternative fuel vehicles across country, the first race. And so I built the Georgia Tech entry, and it made it to the Mississippi.
0: And then what happened?
1: It just died. Oh, but see, I wasn't along for the trip because I was ROTC, had to join the Navy, and so I got the whole project started, and then when I graduated, boom, I was off to a ship and didn't get to see the car until homecoming.
0: So was the ROTC part of the step to working with the U.S. Naval Academy, part of the career path there?
1: Well, you got to remember that was the Vietnam War time, okay, and so you can either go be in a foxhole or on a ship, and I chose to be on a ship. So, yeah, I did a full 20-year career in the Navy, but I was always looking forward to that day I could get out and be a real engineer, and that's when I was able to uh, find a job at the Naval Academy.
0: You say in the book, and the book, again, folks, is Energy Choices, Opportunities to Make Wise Decisions for a Sustainable Future. You spell out the history that the first cars were actually electric cars, not gas cars.
1: Back around 1900, yes, electric cars were uh, outselling gas cars 10 to 1. And in fact, Henry Ford even bought an electric car for his wife because she could just push the button to start it and didn't have to get out there in front with the crank and all that stuff but the end came the day they invented the electric starter for the gasoline engine and that was in a Cadillac an early model of the Cadillac I believe it was in 1912 that was the end of the electric car because now you had the same starting convenience with a gas car as you did with an electric car and the gas car had a little more advantages as far as range
0: I think you said in the book that 1834 is when the first electric car originated. Maybe you don't remember what you wrote as well as I did, and you do have a few different people who've collaborated for this book. Judy Lum, Frank Granshaw, and Charles Blanchard are all attributed here. Mm -hmm. You're the lead author. Are you the main author? I I would
1: say I'm pretty much the main author, and then Judy taught me how to write English. And Charles and uh, Frank, they kibitz a lot on just how the flow went. I was trying to get all my ideas down on paper. And you're right, when I looked that up is when was the first electric propulsion made. It was back in the middle 1800s. And it's amazing how slowly it grew. Gasoline totally dominated. And then 2010, it's a whole new ballgame. We've had uh, electric cars now, full size, that are better, faster, cleaner cheaper to buy, cheaper to operate, and cheaper to maintain, and yet most people still don't grasp that, that the change is here and has already come.
0: So you said that your project was at Georgia Tech. That was in 1970. 1970 was the very first Earth Day happened. I was in high school at the time, and I was part of a presentation to the school about that. Were you already an environmentalist?
1: No, I was a Boy Scout, you know, and you kind of like to protect the great outdoors. You like the outdoors. I'm not sure I'm going to get this date correct, but wasn't the first oil embargo in 74, and then there was another one in 78, or somewhere uh, the, in there? Roughly, okay. plus or
0: minus a year on each so of those. So
1: even though I was in the Navy, in the 78 is when the first production electric car came out, and it was a glorified golf cart. They made them in Florida, and it looks like a cheese wedge, but it's kind of built on a golf cart chassis, but it was street legal and would do about 35 miles an hour, and so In my Navy career, when I finally got back to the States, uh, I bought one of those. It was in somebody's backyard with a tree growing up through it. But I put that on the road in the 1980s, and I drove that for a few years. I drove it to the Naval Academy, and because it only had a 20-mile range, I couldn't get home without plugging in. And that began 35 years of my effort to get the government to let me pay a dollar a day for the electricity and let me plug in. So, I can drive electric. And it's 35 years later, and they still haven't.
0: This does strike me as more than Boy Scout drive that's leading you into this alternative energy way of thinking. I mean, I was a Boy Scout too. Mm-hmm. And a Boy Scout's trustworthy, friendly, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. You got them. We're all of those things, and thrifty is in there, but it doesn't say environmental or ecologically oriented or even energy wise. You might draw it out of some of the others. Where does your real drive to be so focused on this? I mean, it's clearly a passion for you.
1: Well, I'm an engineer, and I just like building things. Well, I guess I like building things, and so I became an engineer. And so you look around you, and, you know, what can you build?
0: A neutron bomb. I mean, you can (laughs) remember I was in physics, right? And so I did, when I was in Africa working in the Peace Corps, I had to make my apparatus out of local things. I learned how to mm-hmm. improvise quite a bit, and I do know the fun. And there's almost no one more inventive in brickling, bricolage. That's French word, isn't it? It's not English. Jury rig, Jury rig uh, something yes. together than Africans. They know how to use a piece of tape and a, a thread, and wow, they're incredible. The direction of what you wanted to put together with your engineering what was that driven by? I'm still trying to get to something deeper. It's just a, you just arbitrarily hopped on one horse and that's the direction you go. Well,
1: well, remember my, my primary hobby since I was in eighth grade was ham radio. Okay. And ham radio, I was not interested in making a lot of contacts with people. I was interested in the, let's demonstrate emergency preparedness. Let's go out in the field, generate our own power and be able to Communicate around the world, and so it was always that drive to have power available to provide emergency communications, which is what always had that interest in power. Along with that interest in power is a slow-growing aversion to stinky gasoline engines and noisy gasoline engines, and eventually an aversion to batteries because they were always dead when you needed them, and they're always and they're messy, and you got to fill them with water and everything else. And so that led to solar. So. It's that ability to provide energy in the field, self-sufficiency that kind of drove the energy side of this.
0: I can understand the excitement of that. 2014, I was in the Congo, the far eastern end of the Congo right near Rwanda and Burundi. And I was at a Quaker hospital clinic thing that's there. And they don't have dependable electricity from anywhere else. So they do have their own solar and batteries and that kind of thing. But, I really think they need a consult with you to make it fully operational. The batteries were having problems and so on, so I understand the passionate for those kinds of things. I mean, when I was ten, twelve years old, I was in the basement making my own little telegraph machine right, right. and all those. I built my first electric motor, then wound the wires and so we 're not on a terribly different path that way. There's something about caring about whether this motor is stinky that maybe it's, you're an aesthetician as well as an engineer. But do you have offspring as well?
1: Yes, my daughter went to um, Swarthmore, uh, Quaker School, and her husband's an ornithologist. She's a entomologist. She does the bees, and her husband does the birds. And so, she, uh,
0: <laughs> and so, how many grandchildren do you have? I,
1: and now I have one of those. So she just bought her uh, first electric car a month ago to drive out to Minnesota where she has her first postdoc. So she bought a, a, a Prius plug-in, and she's just tickled pink with it because most of all of her driving, except driving across country, was, is electric, just driving around in Minnesota or Minneapolis.
0: Your job has been as an aerospace engineer, and I don't think they use gas engines up in space. They use solar panels. They use solar panels. Yeah, you do mention in the book Mm -hmm. that they will always have the top-line solar panel the most efficient. Right now, the efficiency is up to what percent in a PV panel? Well,
1: probably in the labs in the 40s percent, but typically in the the high 30s. I'm glad you saw that plot in the book because... A lot of people say, well, I'm waiting for higher efficiency. You know, we've had these solar cells now since the 1950s, and they've come down tremendously in price, but I'm I'm waiting for the more efficient ones because there's always these more efficient ones. And so I went back and plotted it, and it's just unbelievable. Yes, we've always had more efficient, and they've always cost 100 times more because the space industry will always pay whatever it takes, and all they're getting is a factor of two. They'll pay 100 times more Millions of dollars for solar panels on their spacecraft because that's the only power they get. And if they can double it by spending a million dollars instead of a thousand, they'll do that. Whereas the homeowner will not pay a dime more. He wants the cheapest solar panels. And so I tell people, if you're waiting on higher efficiency, we've had that for 50 years. It's just it'll never be affordable because there's never the demand in the billions of users that we have for the cheap solar.
0: So when you're contributing to the book Energy Choices, Opportunities to Make Wise Decisions for a Sustainable Future, is your intent there to give people sufficient wisdom so that they can make wise choices right now, or is this for five years down the road? You say in 1516 that... I think that solar and wind each became cheaper than coal energy. And I don't know if coal is the cheapest compared Uh,
1: to... uh, 2013 is about the crossover point where solar was down to half the cost of the utility. Around 2010 or so is when, when I say, for me as a homeowner, is when it broke even. And that's when I bought my first solar panels. By 2013, I say it's down to half, and now it's uh, your investment amortized over the 20 years that you have left on this earth. The amortized cost will be about a third what you would be paying the utilities.
0: Well, you're doing your part on it, on your property, and your neighbors evidently too. Yes. Is is this a neighborhood thing? It's it's starting to grow,
1: and I love it because there's one house when you first come into my neighborhood that's just right there in your face, and that guy went solar. And so everybody sees that when they come home. And, of course, then I took this experience to Annapolis Friends Meeting, and we were the first meeting house in Maryland to go solar. Actually, we weren't. We were the first ones to get started, but Baltimore beat us to it because they just went out and did it. But, again, we had to get a variance because that was in the critical area and all those things. But so we're very proud of the fact that our meeting house is completely solar-powered.
0: Well, let's get into some of the detail. In reading Energy Choices, there are a few important things that I learned One of them is you track the solar generation ability, the efficiency, the cost, and I don't know, I think maybe the lowest price I saw were down to
1: below 50 cents a watt. In about 2016 is when the cost of solar was cheaper than building a coal plant. And all the energy from then on is free. As opposed to building the coal plant, you still got to pay for fuel. So it's unbelievable how coal has just died. It's dead. Anybody that puts any kind of money into coal is just throwing their money away, in my opinion.
0: So were you just insulting our president because he wants to put the money towards coal? I mean, this really is a no-brainer at this point, isn't it?
1: Are you talking about the president?
0: I, I wouldn't insult a person that way. I'm talking about the decision to invest in coal at this point.
1: Yes, I'm sorry. The, what we should be investing is in the alternative energy and jobs in West Virginia. To There's all kinds of jobs out there in the solar and wind industry. They're just begging for jobs. And so there's opportunity there. In Iowa, Iowa is now the number one producer of wind power. The fact that that state is up there with California is just amazing. And of course, Much earlier this year is when Texas got to 100% renewable energy with wind and solar. Now, it was on a given— On a particular day. On a particular day. Yes, on a particular day. But the one thing that that shows you is that the grid didn't go down. And if you go back to 2010, when I first started this, everybody was saying, oh, but yeah, solar is only 2%. And if it it gets more than 2% of the national grid, it'll destabilize the grid. It will have all these problems. No, we've been to 100%. Even in Texas, Germany, the Netherlands and some other countries and Hawaii have hit 100 percent on certain days. And the grid did not go down because, yes, it would have been a problem back in 2010 if we didn't do anything. But everybody saw that coming, just like they remember Y2K. It was going to be the end of the world. No. As soon as we started talking about it, everybody said, oh, yeah, well, we can fix that. And that's the same thing with the grid. Yes, if we continue to operate the grid where we just turn on a coal plant and just leave it running and don't pay any attention to the weather or what the demand is or whether it's Monday or Sunday or what, yeah, it's going to destabilize the grid. But, oh, geez, we can predict the weather pretty good, and we can anticipate demand very accurately, and we can just crank back on that coal plant. And so that's why they're closing.
0: So I still hope that our listeners will understand And when people Mm -hmm. are tuning in to Spirit in Action, pretty often we talk about motivations, but I think it's important to know how to enable you to reach your aspirations. And so that's what we're talking about essentially today, especially with our energy choices. Back in the 1980s, on houses I had in Milwaukee, we put in solar hot water. Mm -hmm. That was the most cost-efficient at that point. And I think those kind of systems are very seldom done these days. Have they become less economical, or is it just relative to the photovoltaic, the PV sources, that there are less good investment?
1: You can see me smiling because that is a thread and there was a, a formal paper or that was published back in, I don't know, maybe it was a 2010 time frame that said solar hot water heating is dead. The reason is, is because it used to be prior to that time, kind of peaked in 2005, that of course, heating hot water by solar was far more cost effective than photovoltaics generating electricity because uh, solar panels cost so much. But solar panels have gone down 10 to 1 since then, and... The cost of heating hot water with a heat pump hot water heater that you can buy at Home Depot is three times better. So right there, three times and 10 times, it's 30 times more cost effective to generate hot water by using solar than it used to be. Now, still, the solar panel is less efficient than just collecting hot water, but it's 30 times better. And so back around 2010 is when they equaled. And now that guy has published a new article that says solar hot water heating is dead, 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 because it's just it's not effective. And here's why. Because when you use your investment on your roof to heat hot water, you have got to use every single drop of that hot water every single day in order to have room in your tank for the next day's hot water. If you don't, then you have got assets on the roof of your house that are generating heat, and there's no place to put it. So that cuts into the efficiency of that panel. You put a certain amount of investment in hot water, but only so many days out of a week are you actually producing the full output, and are you going to have enough when you need it? And what happens when you go on vacation and don't use it? Your investment's not generating anything. Whereas the modern way to look at it is you put PV panels on the roof, net grid-tied, And now every single drop of sunshine that falls on your roof, you're getting paid full retail rate through your net meter for that energy. Whether you're at home, whether you're using it, even on a cloudy day and you're not using hot water, you're still generating electricity. You're still generating a financial return on that investment. So that's why the only way to, uh, not the only way, but the optimum way to generate hot water is to generate the electricity first and using a heat pump to generate the hot water. And if you don 't use all the hot water, that electricity is of full value to you.
0: I was dubious about one claim that you made. I know that you're you 're saying here 's how many kilowatt hours mm-hmm. that you use in a house right right that, that kind of thing and so here 's how much this costs here 's how much it costs from the solar. The difference between that in terms of efficiency, which I don't know if you've included in in any of your calculations, is the electrical loss between the plant or the creation source Mm -hmm. of the electricity in your house. I read at one point, and this was probably a couple decades ago, that there was Only a third of it makes it to your house. They ramp up the voltage for long-distance transmission, then they step it down and it comes into your house. That in between, it's lost two-thirds of the power.
1: What you're remembering is how much of the energy from the coal makes it to your house. And right there, two-thirds of the coal energy, the heat, is lost at the generating plant. That's where the two thirds is lost, and only one third gets converted to electricity. Once it's converted to electricity, it goes through the distribution system. I think it's on the order of ninety percent efficient, and so ninety
0: percent efficient. Yeah,
1: that would be my guess.
0: I had no idea it was that good. Yeah,
1: the, the transmission.
0: Transmissions ninety percent right. efficient. Okay, that, well then I on that I'm, order.
1: But but that's the, but the fact that you brought up the thirty percent is the key factor that whether you're burning gas or oil or coal, two-thirds of that, by definition, is just heat that's lost, and only uh, one-third of that is getting converted to electric. Now, when you go to wind power or solar power, that's basically, although it's only converting 15% of the sunshine to electricity, still, from that point, you're getting 90% of that delivered to your house, and who cares about the lost, wasted sunshine? That's called a good day.
0: <laughs> I've seen that And they- the same
1: way with wind. Once the wind blows on that turbine, let's say 90% of that is converted into electrical energy, and what's wasted wind is a good day. So that's where the huge difference between fossil fuels and all these renewables is is that there's not that huge waste of heat energy in the production. And then once you get it to electricity, it can be delivered relatively efficiently.
0: 90% transmission or something yeah, like or, that. Yeah, or, or something on that order. I haven't looked up
1: that number because... What counts to me is I don't pay for it until it gets to my house, okay? And so and then once it's in your house, I think it's probably 95%. In, in other words, the electrical design of the National Electric Code, oh, boy, I shouldn't say this because I'm not sure, but you don't like to lose more than 2% between your distribution box and all the various loads in your house, and you can control that by how big a wire size you need. So we like to keep electrical losses in distribution, you know, in the well under 5% range.
0: Folks, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Spirit in Action. My guest today is Robert Bruninka. He's an aerospace engineer with the United States Naval Academy, and he joins me here today because he's one of the co-authors, the main author for Energy Choices, Opportunities to Make Wise Decisions for a Sustainable Future. We're here face-to-face at the Friends General Conference gathering, which is a nationwide Quaker gathering I go to each summer, 1,000 or 1,500 people typically. He happens to be one of the attenders here this year, so I can talk to him about his book and about his experience in engineering and solar alternative energy, things that have been of long-term interest to me. We're going to go through a lot more detail about that, but first I want to remind you that there are all kinds of links on the Norden Spirit Radio site. So go to org. You'll find all of my guests and topics for the last 13 years links to folks, Uh, you can search for a particular person or topic. And so if you want to find a link to APRS.org, which is part of his ham radio call sign, APRS.org. But if you can't remember that many letters, you certainly can remember NorthernSpiritRadio.org. And on our site, you'll find a link to Bob and to many other people we've interviewed. Also, there's a place to post comments. Two-way communication is the best way. And when you get tired of listening to me, I hope you'll post a comment on the site. There's also a Donate button. It's full-time work that we do here for Northern Spirit Radio, and it's supported only by your money, not by government, not by corporations. So listeners, please click Donate when you come. Even more important, though, is to support alternative media. I guess that ham radio could be considered to be an alternative media, too, I think, Bob. Absolutely. It's a wonderful source. I actually learned ham radio stuff when I was in middle school or junior high as we Mm -hmm. call it back in that day and so please support your alternative media including the community radio stations who carry these programs 36 stations across the united states support them because we need something beyond the official channels right now over 90 percent of our media is owned by just six corporations and it's Mm. way too much concentrated, and it means we've got a a narrowing of the options. So please do support community radio stations first, and then come and invest in solar panels and wind energy, as Bob Brunica is telling us today. He's giving us why, in particular this past eight years, there's been a revolution happen. We've reached the point where it's really a no-brainer to go for alternative energy. There are a couple of threads I wanted to follow. One thing that you mentioned early on, by the way, was lawnmowers. And you talk in the book about your own experience going from a mm-hmm. gas motor and trying to get it. I've got one and, you know, pull it, yank it. Mm-hmm. and I, I've got a real strong right arm because of trying to get that thing started. You were not an eager adopter of the alternative, but when you got to electric and self-propelled, I was surprised to hear that since you actually made the statement that you thought it was good that you pushed your mower so you'd stay more mm-hmm. fit, that somehow self-propelled electric was the winner for you. Tell me how you got there.
1: Well, as you said, ever since I was in elementary school, I was playing with lawnmower engines and go-karts and things like that. So I spent all my life tinkering with gas engines, and I'm just getting fed up with it because there's always something wrong with them. It's always, it never cranks when you want it. Well, it's because I would never buy anything new, but... So I kind of kept an eye on electric lawnmowers. But, you know, when you're pushing a lawnmower that has two car batteries on it, it it just never appealed to me whatsoever because my yard has about 30 feet elevation change. But just recently, the wife says, people are coming tomorrow. you got to mow the lawn. And so I went running over to Home Depot, and I saw the electric mowers. And then I saw the modern electric mower has a battery the size of a six-pound bag of flour. And that's, you know, just something inside of a coffee can. That'll do an acre, and not only that, but the thing is self-propelled, and not only that, is you can do all your mowing, and I can just leave the mower down at the bottom of the hill and just pop out the battery, go up, charge it, and it's ready for the next time. Oh, and then the last thing that was surprising, remember my wife said, before tomorrow, well, it was already dark, and this thing has lights on it. (laughs) <laughs> and so now I have found that it is my preferred time to mow the lawn is at night because it's electric, it's quiet, doesn't bother the neighbor. There's ordinances against mowing, you know, after dark or something like that, I'm sure. But you can't hear it. it just, I mean, well, You can hear it, but it's certainly not the obnoxious uh, gasoline engine. And so I found it very uh, comfortable to mow at night. It's cooler and I can do it on my time, you know, when I get home late.
0: The thing that you share in the book Energy Choices that blew my mind was the amount of pollution relative that comes out of a lawnmower compared to a car.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that it was kind of self-defeating because we haven't talked much about it, I don't think, yet, as electric cars, which is, you know, it's revolutionary, and how much that can do for our environment because it's, you know, better, faster, cleaner, cheaper, one-third the energy and so forth. But when you realize that a gasoline engine that's in a power tool or anything other than a car where it has a catalytic converter is producing 10 times the toxins of a modern gasoline engine in a car with a catalytic converter and all those pollution control devices that they've been forced to include in automobiles for the last uh, 30, 40 years. All of these single engine gas tools that we have don't have any of that. And so the gasoline mower used for one hour a weekend puts out the same toxins as a full-size car does in 11 days of commuting. Uh, It's just unbelievable. So the disappointing thing was, going back a few paragraphs, was that going out and buying a $600 electric lawnmower is going to do the same thing for an environment as buying a uh, $30,000 electric car as far as those toxins is concerned. And look how much uh, less it was. But now, remember, I'm talking the toxins, the nitrous oxides, and all those things that the catalytic converter gets rid of. That's the real difference between gasoline engines without a catalytic converter and other gas engines. But still, the smaller lawnmower is not going to put out as much carbon emissions because it's just not that big of an engine. It's not breathing that much air. So still the car is still going to produce all that
0: so it won't solve problems with climate change but it'll solve a lot of problems with respect to poisoning your local environment
1: yes and remember you're only three feet away from it when you're pushing that lawnmower with no filters on it or anything else so anyway to close that idea so i say the electric lawnmower is the first thing to do but don't let that keep you from also getting the electric car because the electric car now will reduce your carbon impact
0: let's talk a little bit about the cars now mm-hmm. There have been electric cars for a while. They've been very expensive. And, the, you know, the first model of something, you know, you've, you're, you're only making 10 of them, and so the cost individually is very expensive. When did electric cars really come into their own?
1: Well, they came in their own in about 2010 when the modern version of the electric car came out, the Leaf and the Chevy Volt. Those are the first two that came out. And that was the beginning of the revolution. And it was over by 2013 because by 2013, the average cost of an electric car was about equal to the average cost of a gas car. And now we're to the point, this is 2018, 80% of the electric cars on the market now cost less than the average gas car. The average gas car is $35,000. 80% of the electric cars on the market, the battery electric cars on the market, cost less than that. And yet you talk to somebody on the street and they say electric cars cost too much. I don't know where they're getting their information from. And that's why I wrote this book and everything else is that change started in 2010 and we're there. We have all the solutions. We have the solar. We have the electric cars. We have the wind power. It's just people need to wake up to the fact that the world is changing.
0: Are the cars that are being produced by Tesla, are they cheaper than, I mean, they're not Leaf and Volt, mm-hmm. you know? I,
1: well, they're like your, your Mercedes. I mean, they're catering to the luxury market. And in, in one sense, the Tesla has kind of, I don't want to say done a bad thing, but prior to Tesla, those of us who promote electric cars says an electric car is a local car. You use it for commuting, you use it around town, but don't even think about driving across country. That makes no sense. Why would you do that? The electric car is for 90% of our travel, which is all local. And we should be doing that on electricity and not wasting our precious gasoline driving around town. And then Tesla comes out and says, well, I can make a 300-mile electric car, and I'm going to put charging stations all across the country. And guess what? You can drive an electric car across the country, except that it's a 70 to $100,000 electric car. So in that sense, that started the consumer demand for well i want to have more range i want to have more range i want to have range like the tesla and so chevy volt chevy bolt b-o-l-t chevy beat tesla to the low cost electric car with 239 miles 238 miles electric range for less than the cost of the average gas car it's called bolt and so now you can buy an electric car that can also do that long range it's 238 miles, not, you know, 500 miles that you can get out of a gas tank car. But so what if you have to stop every three hours for a, a charge that's possible to do. But it fuels this consumer demand for maximum range when, in fact, the smart electric driver does not buy the maximum range electric car. He buys the minimum electric car battery that will do his daily needs. And if you can buy a car for half the price, that'll go half as far but you only drive 30, 40, 50 miles a day, then why in the world are you going to spend an extra $50,000 on a battery that you're only going to use once a month to save you 20 minutes in charging? You know, the cost-effectiveness is not there.
0: Actually, I have a son who's never owned a car. He's Mm -hmm. now 31. It's a lifestyle choice for him. It's a question of where he invests his money. Mm -hmm. But if he needs to do a trip that requires some traveling, he can rent a car, and he does rent a car for that purpose. So a long distance ride, you can say, okay, well, I, our electric car won't go, but I can go down and rent one of those. I can rent a Prius and do a long trip, and that'll be just fine. Now, in your case, I think both you and your wife have electric or somewhat electric. Is your wife's actually a Prius? Uh,
1: it's a Prius, but I, I want to go back to the Tesla one. Back when the Tesla first came out. You could buy the Tesla for about $60,000, $60, $70,000 with the small battery, and you could buy it with the large battery for about 120000 So somewhere in there, it's exactly the same car, has the same pickup, it's the same snob appeal, it has everything that you'd want to buy a Tesla for, but it's $50,000 cheaper if you buy the smaller battery. And so that's where I was saying, for that $50,000 additional that you're going to pay for this battery that you drive around with every day and only use it once a month to go to New York City, was that $50,000 worth it to avoid a 20-minute stop to charge along the way? Or said the other way, that $50,000 could rent a car with gas two days every weekend for 10 years. But to get back to the the Prius, we're talking about range for when you go on a trip, and that's why... More than half of the cars these days are plug-in hybrids. That means they have the gas engine as a backup for the long-distance trip, and then you use the battery for just all your local travel. And that's where you buy one that only has a big enough battery to do your going to and from work and the grocery store and everything else every day so that you can plug that in and never have to go to a gas station. But when you get the call from Grandma, you just keep driving, and the gas engine kicks in, and you can do, in the Prius, you can do 600 miles before you have to stop for gas. So talk about an electric car with 600 miles, that's what a Prius plug-in is.
0: There's another feature I hadn't thought about, and I feel a little bit silly that I didn't think about this before. You point out that maintenance on an electric car is significant less. I mean, when you've got a gas-powered vehicle, you're having little explosions going in there, the internal combustion. You've got all kinds of things, moving parts that are susceptible to being worn out. An electric car gets rid of most of those. How significant is the difference between maintenance costs of an electric versus a gas-powered vehicle?
1: They've only been out for 10 years, and like I said, I've been driving, we have three Priuses 2004-2005, so they're more than 12, 13 years old, 14 years old, and uh, they've never been back to the dealer once. So the prediction is that the maintenance on an electric car is going to be about 10% of the maintenance cost of a gas car. When you think about the gas car, what are the things you always have to maintain? You've got to get the uh, emissions tested every two years, and that usually requires, you know, you need to get the thing tweaked, new air filters and exhaust systems, and what is it, a PVC valve? all of these pollution control things in change the car change the oil you got to change the oil so a lot of these things that are the most headachey in a gas car are all the pollution stuff to try to make it clean An electric car eliminates all that so
0: including the transmission
1: yes most uh, electric cars don't they have a transmission they have gears to to match the speed of the engine to the thing but they don't have shifting gears they don't have all that complexity of gear shifting So the engine just stays permanently connected to the wheels, and away you go.
0: So there's immense savings in terms of when you're comparing the two. I don't think that most companies, they don't make this very visible to you that it's going to save you a lot of that money.
1: Well, and that's the biggest threat to the car dealership model because car dealers, they sell you a car so they can sell you maintenance for the rest of your life. So the car dealers see it as a big threat that they're going to lose a lot of their business model. Buy these electric cars that never need maintenance or need very little maintenance other than tires, wipers. That's about it.
0: Folks, we're talking with Bob Bruninga, Robert, uh, officially. But Bob, Bob, when I'm talking to him, if you want to look his name up, Robert is how he says on his CV, I'm pretty sure. But he's not looking for a job because he's getting near the end of his career as aerospace engineer with the United States Naval Academy. I want to talk a bit about batteries now because this represents a turning point in terms of what's effective. As you point out, Bob, you said it several times during the interview and you said it a number of times in various ways in energy choices, opportunities to make wise decisions for a sustainable future, that the turning point came when we weren't thinking of using solar panels to charge batteries, but rather to put it into the grid, when we Mm -hmm. tie into the grid. I have to admit to a reluctance myself. Not, not that I really oppose tying into the grid. I'm, I'm actually kind of fine with that. But the thing that has pissed me off is when they said that, well, if you do that, then when the grid is down, when your electric lines go down, your solar is shut down. And it's like, no, I'm getting all this power generating mm-hmm. right here. Why should you shut down my solar? Now, I know there's ways to work around that, but One of their concerns is if we're generating power from our solar panels and their lines go down, they have to go repair the lines. They don't want electricity in the lines. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's understandable someone doesn't want to get electrocuted that's the point at which I would like to be able to run autonomously. And I do live out in the country. I'm not right in Mm -hmm. the city. So, you know, lines do go down. We don't have a lot of power outages where I live. But could you talk about that and the role of batteries and being tied into the grid?
1: Yes, that was a very good question because the implication there was that the big brother is requiring you to shut down your solar array. And it's not really that at all. It's the technology the grid-tied solar is pushing current into the grid, and in order to push current against an alternating waveform, it has to know where that waveform is so it knows when to push because half the time you're pushing in and the other half you're pulling negative in the opposite direction. So it has to have the grid to follow. So as soon as the grid shuts down, the solar panel doesn't have any anything to push against, and so there's, there's no power. The power is there as, as D.C., and there are other ways to use that power, but it's it's not as though it's an arbitrary it's something that's forced. It's just it just happens. But the National Electric Code says it must not produce then as well. The point is is that the economics of solar power is because you don't have a battery. If you put a battery in to self store your energy, the cost of your system is going to triple. And the reason is is because the batteries are going to add a significant amount, but the batteries are not going to last the full 25 years or 50 years of the solar array. And so, you're, you know, you've got to remember that you're going to have to replace batteries over time. You also have to maintain them and take care of them and all those other kinds of things. And here's the number one thing that people don't realize is you produce twice as much solar in the summer than you do in the winter. If you size your system and you're living off grid and you have to have a battery, if you size your system such that you can live your normal lifestyle in the winter, then you have twice as much power and no place to put it in the summer because you can't put it in a battery and save it for six months and use it later. By the same token, if you size your array for uh, what you need in the summer and the spring and the fall, then you're not going to have enough battery power in the winter to make it through the worst coldest days. The beauty of being grid tight is that no matter when you produce power during the year, you're getting paid for it. It's pushing your meter backwards. Whenever you want to draw it back, you get it back at the same rate that you put it in. So that's part of where I say it costs three times as much. If you wanted to buy a big enough battery, Well, you couldn't buy a big enough battery to save it for a whole six months worth of power. Already, it's very expensive just to buy enough batteries to save one day's worth of power, which is what an off-grid home does. So,
0: what you actually need to do is split water into hydrogen, yes. oxygen, save up the hydrogen, and save up the hydrogen, and then just put it back yes, together. Essentially, you a fuel together. cell right. on your property. You just have to have a tank for that. Mm-hmm. Of course, you and I know that, but uh, maybe our listeners out there don't understand that. It. It's, it's perfectly simple.
1: And the other thing about, about grid tie is uh, that with battery system. You've got to oversize your array, oversize your battery because the sun doesn't shine beautifully every single day. You've got several cloudy days in a row. And if you're trying to store your own energy and all of a sudden the weather just keeps getting extended and worse and you start turning more and more lights off, you turn off. You know, your lifestyle now is dependent on the instantaneous weather in an off-grid system. Whereas grid tide, you produce X number of megawatts a year. And you use X number of megawatts a year, and it doesn't matter when you produce it and when you use it. So that's the beauty of grid time. It just all washes out.
0: I do want to mention that it's not only solar energy that's looked at in Energy Choices by Robert Bruninga. It includes some talk about wind and its role in there. Now, solar is, I think, still Mm -hmm. the main thing that you've analyzed and looked at from many different points of view. We've even hardly talked about electrical cars and my
1: favorite topic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and and you know, you talk about how at the Annapolis Friends meeting where you've put so you can plug it in. You said the Naval Academy resisted, resisted, resisted to give you a place where you could plug in your car or your first your cart, right? Mm-hmm. Why were they resisting? Was it that the $2 a month that was going to cost them electricity or $2 a day? It doesn't really matter. Why were they resisting?
1: Well, they said, you know, it's only you. Okay, well, now there's 27 of us there that have electric cars, and it's still, well, but we got 2,000 people working. It's setting up a bureaucratic process to take my money. They can't figure out how to do it. But remember, we got the law. Congress passed the law in uh, 2016, part of the FAST Act, and it says— Government employees are authorized to plug into a federal outlet, standard outlet, and pay $6 per pay period, which is about $15 a month, and get a little placard to hang on your car that shows you fully paid for the government's electricity, and you should be allowed to plug in. That's federal law, okay? But how that gets down through the Secretary of Defense, to the Secretary of the Navy, to the Navy Department, to the whatever, and then to the Naval Academy, and then to the Public Works Department, and then to the finance people, it takes a lot of bureaucracy to do that. So it's going to happen. I mean, the law is already there. But is
0: it going to happen while you're still employed there? No, i got one year
1: left. (laughs) (laughs) But see, the problem is that also in the same 10 years, of the 27 people that now drive electric cars and would love to plug in, only one guy really needs to. Because now nobody's driving around in a 20-mile range electric car. So they can make it to work and home, and they plug in at home. So why bother competing for a parking spot that has a, a car charger? But as more and more cars get electric... And a lot of the plug-in hybrids do have ranges in the range of 20 to 30 miles. And so the person who does live 20 miles away, he would like to be able to plug into that outlet all day long so that he can drive home on electric, too. Now, he doesn't worry him at all because he can drive home because it's a plug-in hybrid. It has a gas engine as well. But once you buy an electric car or a plug-in hybrid that also has gas, you want to use the electricity. You don't want to use the gas. That's why you bought it. And so people get very – they used to talk about range anxiety. People who buy a plug-in hybrid now have gas anxiety. They'll do anything they can to keep from having that gas engine kick on because that's why they're there. Now, here's an argument I love to refute, and that is when people say, yeah, but you're plugging it into the grid, and the grid has coal and you know burns natural gas. And I don't know where that guy's coming from, but not mine. And anybody in Maryland can sign up for wind power with their utility In fact, they get these mailings every month in their mailbox that says, you know, sign up for wind. And it turns out it is no coincidence that the people who buy electric cars also buy clean energy. Why would they have bought an electric car in the first place? And so just because somebody else uses coal-powered electricity doesn't mean I do. The example I like to use is using the the excuse of coal-powered utilities making dirty electric cars is like saying that I have an 18% chance of dying from lung cancer because 18% of Americans smoke. But I don't smoke, so don't use that statistic against me. Same way with coal, just because 30% of our energy is coming from coal, not mine. And if we go to the electric, uh, all the people in our electric car club, 90% of them will say, not mine, they're buying their electricity from wind or solar.
0: But do you pay a premium to have your energy coming, your electrical energy coming, via an alternative energy like solar or wind? Or is it just signing up? Who knows?
1: When you go to your Baltimore Gas and Electric in Maryland, which is a deregulated utility, you go and say, "Oh, well, I want to sign up for clean power. And they say, okay, here's a list of 40 companies. And they're all middlemen. All of these 40 companies are out there trying to get your utility dollar. Go with us. We'll offer you $0.08 cents power and it'll go up next year. We'll give it to you for 9 cents for 6 months. We'll give it to you for 10 cents guaranteed for 2 years. You know, 40 different deals on how to sell you power. Now, if you can figure out what is the true cost of electricity in that good luck. But the cost of signing up for National Wind added about a fraction of a cent which, you know, when you're paying 10 cents for electricity and, and maybe you paid Uh, two tenths of a percent more what is that five percent so you're paying about five percent more to go wind but that uh, to me was worth it i did sign up for one year to go maryland wind because that's more directly uh, local and that cost about a penny more per kilowatt hour but it didn't matter to me because i'm grid tied right so all the electricity that i buy i sell at the same price so the cost of electricity doesn't matter to me and never will The cost of electricity can go to any price it wants to because what I produce, I use – same
0: price My point though was, if the cost of producing wind energy or solar mm-hmm. energy is less than the cost of coal energy, why are they charging you more shouldn 't they be charging you less i 'm going to sign up for solar or wind, and you should therefore drop my price.
1: Well, remember the utilities are in this to make money, and that 's the problem oh, really? is uh, you they're know, out for the, money. the, are the they? fact that they 're able to buy wind cheaper they 're not going to pass that along to you until they 're forced to so it 's um, the business model.
0: I've never been to Annapolis Friends meeting, but I want to go just to see your solar panels and plug mm. in. I don't even have a car I can plug I do have a Prius, but I don't know if I can plug it in there anyhow. But the point being, how did you get to the point where you had both the solar panels in front and the plug-ins for the electrical That's vehicles? a good question
1: because that is, that's one of my <laughs> crusades in that I cruise parking lots looking for outdoor outlets. And when I see one, I go to the owner and I say, do you realize you already have an electric vehicle charging capability and are you taking advantage of that by in- attracting customers and so forth? So the first thing we did was I noticed that the light poles out in our parking lot had a little outlet. So we put a sign over it that says electric vehicle charging outlet. And then we put two signs up. And now we have four signs up because we have – we got more outlets.
0: Because they keep multiplying we, we on have their outlets.
1: <laughs> But the point is – that nobody ever uses them almost for the last eight years The value of those signs is not for the 1% of electric car driver who might use it or might need to use it. It's for the other 99% of our members who see that every single day they come to meeting and they realize, geez, we've got electric charging in our parking lot. I shouldn't worry about buying an electric car. When I come to meeting, I can plug in. And so that's the value of the sign is getting that realization out there to everybody that drives that everywhere there's an outdoor outlet, you've got the ability to plug in. We've got about two dozen now, churches, schools, and any, like I say, anybody that I can find that has an outdoor outlet, I tell them, put up the sign. Get credit for having the capability now. Hotels is a, a perfect place because when somebody comes to a hotel, they're going to sleep for eight hours, maybe. And in eight hours, you can pick up 50 miles, and that's a full, fully charged Chevy Volt, for example. And so you do that from just a standard 120-volt
0: outlet. How much power are the solar panels in front of the Annapolis Friends meeting? 10,000 10, watts.
1: Now, remember, our, our meeting house is small, about like a house, a regular house, as far as its demand. And so the 10,000 watts provided 100% of our solar, still being grid-tied. So that meant the utility bill was about $10 a month you know, to just pay for the account. But then we realized we're burning $4,000 worth of propane for heat every year. And that, when uh, propane got to be $4 a gallon, we said, this is ridiculous. So we changed to a heat pump. When we changed to a heat pump, heating costs went down from $4,000 a year down to about $1,500 a year of added electricity. And that shows you how much more efficient the heat pump is, but it uses electrical energy. So now we had to add more solar panels We had to up our array by about a third in order to make up that electricity for now heating. So now we're 100 percent carbon free because the solar panels provides now our electricity and our heating and our cooling and our electric vehicle charging. And so everything's covered.
0: So I think you're both energy neutral and you're carbon neutral. And those aren't the same things.
1: Yeah, it depends on how you count it up. But the, the, one of the best photo ops we had was when the Women's Sewing Club came, and we realized they're going to fill up the whole a meeting room with sewing machines. You know, they had rows and rows and rows of sewing machines, and we put a sign on the— now, they're not all our members, you know, we been our meeting house out to a lot of things, but we put a sign up that says, these sewing machines all 100% solar-powered. <laughs> it was great.
0: Well, I'd like to go on to more detail. Since I haven't finished the book, I can't ask you about things in the last 30 pages of the book. But let let me
1: say one thing. I don't think it has come out in this, and that is the reason for writing the book is that almost everything we've talked about so far, everybody realizes, they've heard. Solar is here, and it's our future, and it's now. Electric cars are our future, and they're actually here now. All of these things you can do for lower cost. The point of the book was when I realized that people face energy decisions routinely new roof, new car, new water heater. You move to a new location. You get a new job. Every month, you get an opportunity from your utility bill to sign up for a different power source. We face these energy decisions. You average them all out. You know, a 20-year roof, the average American gets a new car every nine years. You average all those things out, and you face a major energy decision every two years on average. But when the water heater goes out and the wife is standing in a cold shower, the first thing you do is go down to Home Depot and buy another gas or electric water heater because you haven't thought it out in advance. What am I going to do at the next major energy decision? The purpose of this book is to say you're going to face these decisions, think it out in advance, because the money you're going to save by buying a heat pump water heater is going to be three times what it costs to have an electric water heater. Having a prepared mind for these major energy decisions that you're going to face in life so that you do the right thing. That's what we're trying to do, is to make sure you're ready to make the decision. We're not saying go out there and scrap a perfectly good gas car, but when the next one comes up, please look at what's out there for electric cars.
0: You have to be ready, and this book helps you do it. Again, the book is Energy Choices, Opportunities to Make Wise Decisions for a Sustainable Future. The lead author is Robert, Bob to his friends, Bruninga, with contributions from Judy Lum, Frank Grandshaw, and Charles Blanchard. It's book number eleven in QIF, that's Quaker Institute for the Future number of series. I've interviewed folks about one of the earlier books in the series. This book is well worth looking at to prepare yourself for the future. The future's already here, but your water heater may be going out in two years and, or your car will need to be replaced or your roof will need to be replaced for any of those events. Or maybe it's your lawnmower that will need That's to be replaced. Good any of these things. If you've read this book, you're going to be well prepared to make a wise decision through technical detail that a lot of people are unaware of and that there's a lot of vested interest against sharing with the average individual so please get hold of energy choices i've got a link so you can get a hold of it on my site and you can also remember to go visit robert by his site aprs.org the link is on norton dot org. Bob, thank you so much for doing the research, for having the passion. I love watching you as I'm doing this interview and seeing the passion that you've got for this. The fact that you've got it means that lives of a lot of people will be better. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. And again, folks, you've been listening to Spirit in Action. We'll be back next week. See you then. Our lives will feel the echo